Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning. Happy Tuesday morning, everyone. Good night. Yeah, great night. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. We are here and there's a lot of news to get to. Let's get started with five things to know for this Tuesday, May 16th. So new overnight, CNN obtained new video of a man chasing a screaming woman with a bat minutes before he allegedly attacked staffers at a congressman's field office. You hear the screams there. The suspect this morning is under arrest. And Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly says his staffers have non-life-threatening injuries. Also in Washington, President Biden is going to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy again today as both try to find a way forward when it comes to the debt ceiling. McCarthy said that they are not closer than they were as the Treasury Secretary is doubling down that America is headed for a default as early as June 1st. Also, the Durham report is now out after three years in the making. The special counsel from the Trump era says the FBI should have never launched a full investigation into connections between the former president's 2016 campaign and Russia. But he did not recommend any new criminal charges or, quote, wholesale changes to how the FBI handles politically charged investigations. And Ron DeSantis is ready to run. Sources tell CNN the Florida governor will announce his bid for the White House before the end of the month as he shows a new willingness to take on Donald Trump. And the bounce of a ping pong ball could change the future of an NBA franchise. The draft lottery is tonight, and the winner gets a shot to Victor Wembenyama, the French phenom who is considered the best prospect since LeBron James. Stand in this morning starts right now. morning and of course we are following that top story that Poppy yeah. mentioned there at the top of the hour as we are getting new details about the man who was accused of t- attacking congressional staffers with a baseball bat in Virginia yesterday. CNN has obtained this surveillance video that appears to show the same suspect chasing his neighbor with a metal bat just minutes before he went to the Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly's district office. <laughs> After what you see happening here, where he is chasing that woman, police say the suspect then drove to Congressman Connolly's office. It's about six miles away from where this took place. The congressman says that the bat-wielding man attacked his intern, who was on her first day at the job at the front desk, and then also struck a senior aide in the head. This individual caused mass destruction in your office, too. Yeah, after he was denied access to more staff members he could hurt. Uh, he turned his fury on the office itself and a lot of broken glass, destroyed computers, some furniture. Luckily, a staffer was able to call 911 and within minutes, police arrived and took down the suspect with a taser. The father of the suspect that you see here tells CNN his son is mentally ill and that he has not taken his medication for schizophrenia in several months. The congressman says the suspect had previously contacted his, his office for help with some sort of issue and had made bizarre statements to staff. 
Washington, our Washington correspondent, Sumlin Serfati, is following the story and tracking the latest in this. Sumlin, first, do we know how the staffers are, are doing here that were injured whenever he, he showed up at this office? Good morning, Caitlin. Yeah, the two staffers that had been injured, they now have been released from the hospital. In an interview with CNN, Congressman Connolly says it was only the quick thinking of his staff that really prevented many more from being injured in his office. He said the suspect did enter his office demanding to see the congressman. He was filled, he says, with an out-of-control rage. He was shattering glass and breaking computers throughout the office with that metal baseball bat. Now, the congressman says this person had contacted his office in the past. He reached out for help on an issue. His staff did sense in talking to him over the, the period that he engaged in some bizarre statements, but he said he never made any threats like this brazen and violent attack. Terrifying video caught on a home security camera. Neighbors say it shows the man now accused of attacking a Virginia congressman's staffers allegedly chasing a woman with a bat minutes earlier. I don't think there is a motivation. I think we're talking about real mental illness. Several neighbors heard the commotion. Daniel Ashley says it wasn't until he heard about a possible connection to the attack on the congressman's office that he started looking through his security camera footage. That was the clip that had the woman running away from the guy with the baseball bat, she's screaming and terrified. I heard about the Jerry Connolly thing on the news, but I had no idea that I was so close to home. Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly says Monday morning the alleged attacker walked into his district office in Fairfax in an enraged state. Turns out that he had already used that bat to like destroy uh, older woman's uh, windshield uh, out further west. Um, So he was on a tear. He did arrive here in a vehicle um, and he walked to the office um, and began swinging the bat, striking two staff members. The congressman telling CNN he wasn't there at the time. A man had come into our office with a uh, metal baseball bat and asked for me. And when told that I was at an event, he proceeded to attack the young intern who was at the front desk on her first day. And then when the noise and commotion became clear, others came running out of their offices and he attacked my outreach director and uh, hit her badly on the back of her head. Both suffered non-life-threatening injuries. Connolly says police responded within five minutes. They took the suspect into custody after a confrontation with him that left one officer injured. The father of the 49-year-old suspect tells CNN his son is schizophrenic and hasn't taken his medication for three months. The congressman hopes this attack will lead to changes. We're going to have to reassess the security we provide or don't provide district offices. So if you have, if you're a member of Congress and your office happens to be in the federal building, you know, the courthouse, you're going to have security. But if you're in a commercial office space like me, you have no security, none. And uh, what could go wrong with that? Well, we learned the answer to that question. And the suspect's father told CNN he has tried to get help for his son in the past. The 49-year-old was also known to law enforcement. He was charged in January of 22 with felony assault on a law enforcement officer, among other charges. The district attorney then declined to prosecute. Now, for this incident, Caitlin, he's facing charges of one count of aggravated malicious wounding and one count of malicious wounding. Yeah, certainly raising questions about security at these 
District Congressional Office. Sunlin Sarfati, thank you. No question about that. Well, new details this morning on a deadly mass shooting. This happened in Farmington, New Mexico. An 18-year-old gunman killed three people and wounded six others, including two police officers, before being shot and killed by police. The gunman used three guns, one of them an AR-style rifle. According to police, he roamed a rough quarter-mile area, shooting and firing randomly. Natasha Chen is following it and joins us now. All too common in America, using an AR like so many others have. What do we know this morning? Well, Poppy, the police chief posted a video to Facebook last night describing the scene as wide and complex. And you mentioned that the shooter apparently roamed for up to a quarter mile through this neighborhood. The chief said shooting at, quote, whatever entered his head to shoot at. And that included, apparently, at least six houses and three cars. You mentioned he shot and killed three people. He injured six others, including two members of law enforcement, one Farmington police officer and one state police officer. They are expected to survive with uh, non-life-threatening injuries. Now, the police chief did talk about this as being one of the most difficult days that Farmington has ever experienced. He called it difficult to understand and devastating. Here he is talking about the investigation. We are doing the best that we can to piece through and talk with family members of the suspect, piece through what was going on, look at the evidence to see if we can figure out what the motivation was. But at this point, it appears to be purely random uh, that there was no schools, no churches, uh, no individuals targeted. And for a time, the schools in the area were locked down as they were trying to figure out what was going on here. Last night, uh, there was a vigil held in the community. We want to show you some of that video of people lighting candles. Uh, An affiliate tells us that they prayed for the families of the victims, the families of the injured, as well as the family of the 18-year-old shooter who was ultimately shot and killed in an exchange of gunfire with police. Uh, The police chief there did say he was unbelievably proud of the response by three agencies there, and there is expected to be a press conference later this afternoon where we hope to find more information, Poppy. Okay, Natasha, thank you. Also, just hours from now, top lawmakers are going to be walking into the grounds of the White House for another round of debt limit talks with President Biden and Vice President Harris. This comes as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is doubling down on that the U.S. is going to be unable to pay its bills potentially as early as June 1st. You can see here that it's just 15 days away from where we stand right now. Kevin McCarthy says that he has seen no movement in the talks so far. We're only a couple of weeks away. And if you look at the timeline to pass something in the House and pass something in the Senate, you've got to have something done by this weekend. And we are nowhere near any of that. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill this morning ahead of those talks. And Lauren, you hear Kevin McCarthy there talking about the timing here, saying that they are still nowhere close to it. Obviously, the clock is ticking. President Biden is set to leave the country tomorrow. But also, I remember when Kevin McCarthy became Speaker Kevin McCarthy, he said he would give his members 72 hours to review new legislation. So what is the realistic timeline here looking like? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a set of challenges here, one of which is they are still trying to figure out what the contours of this negotiation are going to be, what Republicans and Democrats in the rank and file are going to be willing to support if the leaders and the principals specifically are able to come to some kind of agreement. This high-stakes meeting today at 3 o'clock is really important for a few reasons, Caitlin, one of which is that the last meeting they had one week ago, it didn't go smoothly. In fact, lawmakers came out, the president came out of that meeting, basically holding dueling press conferences about their own plans moving forward. And that really showed you just how far apart they are. Staff has been working around the clock nearly every single day since that meeting to try and smooth over what the differences are right now. But what you're hearing from people who are watching these negotiations and getting read into them, like Republican Whip John Thune, is that time is running short. And in Thune's view, the right people are not in the room. They believe that having Biden and McCarthy in this room is going to be really important. Perhaps they'll be able to nail down some more specifics. But like you noted, Kate. And time is running short. And McCarthy has made clear he thinks they need to have a deal in hand by this weekend if they have any hope of moving this through both the House of Representatives, where he does need to give his members some time to review this legislation, and the U.S. Senate, where things just take a very long time on the Senate floor. Caitlin? Yeah, the staffs can meet and meet and meet, but ultimately it's going to be up to President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. Lauren Fox, I know you'll be tracking this meeting and be very busy today. Thank you. Also this morning, a newly released report from special counsel John Durham slams the FBI's investigation into the 2016 Trump campaign. It is a scathing 300-plus page report, four years of investigation. It concludes the FBI never should have opened the investigation into former President Trump's ties to Russia. But ultimately, it falls short of proving that Trump and his allies claims short of proving Trump and his allies' claims of a political witch hunt. There is a lot to dissect in this. Paula Reed joins us now. We've been waiting and waiting again four years, now 306 pages in this report. What was the purpose and what is the big takeaway? Well, Poppy, after Durham was appointed by Bill Barr, former President Trump and his allies claimed that Durham would be able to prove the FBI's investigation was nothing more than a political witch hunt. But the report released yesterday offered no significant new evidence to support those claims. I'm waiting for the report like everybody else. A nearly four-year investigation is over. Special counsel John Durham releasing his findings in a 300-plus page report. He states that the FBI used raw, unanalyzed, and uncorroborated intelligence to launch Crossfire Hurricane. The year-long FBI investigation into former President Donald Trump's associates and Russian officials. But when it came to weighing concerns about Hillary Clinton's campaign of alleged election interference, the FBI applied a different standard. Durham determined there was no concrete proof of collusion between Trump's 2016 campaign and Russia before the start of that FBI investigation. In his harshest criticism of the FBI, Durham says the agency didn't interview any essential witnesses and didn't do a significant review of its own intelligence databases. Adding, the FBI launched the investigation without any of the standard analytical tools typically employed by the FBI in evaluating raw intelligence. He suggested that if the FBI had followed those measures, they would have found no evidence linking Trump's 2016 campaign to Russian officials. 
Although Durham identified flaws in the investigation, he did not suggest any changes to the FBI's policies. Former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe defended the agency's handling of the investigation. Yeah, I vehemently disagree with, uh, with Mr. Durham's characterizations of what we did in the report. Look, the fact is, we knew what the Russians were doing and had done in an effort to help Donald Trump. And if we had had any information, any, any intelligence or information that indicated that the Clinton campaign was colluding with the Russians, we would have investigated that as well. But that information doesn't exist, and to my knowledge, was not happening. Durham was appointed by Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, in 2019. The investigation cost at least $6.5 million. It led to one minor conviction and two trial losses. For years, Trump and his allies have claimed that the FBI's investigation was a political witch hunt. Posting on social media, Trump claiming vindication. Wow, after extensive research, special counsel John Durham concludes the FBI never should have launched the Trump-Russia probe. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan has announced that he has reached out to the Justice Department to have Durham testify next week. A clear sign that Trump's Republican allies will seek to use this report to advance their own political objectives, even if it didn't produce the blockbuster revelations that they had hoped. Poppy. Paula, thank you for dissecting all that for us. Appreciate it. Also this morning, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now reportedly days away from launching his 2024 campaign. It may have seemed like it's already been launched, <laughs> but not officially yet. The new measures that he is taking to dig in on culture war issues will tell you next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. So CNN has now learned the identity of the informant who has allegedly gone missing on House Republicans. Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer mentioned this missing informant in a recent interview he did with Fox News over the weekend. Watch this. Well, unfortunately, uh, we can't track down the informant. Uh, we're hopeful that the informant is still there. The whistleblower knows the informant. The whistleblower is very credible. We're hopeful that we can find the informant. Now, remember, these informants are, are kind of in the, the spy business, so uh, they don't make a habit of uh, being seen a lot or, or being high profile or anything like that. Now, a source tells CNN that missing informant is an Israeli professor named Gal Luft, who is wanted by the U.S. for arms dealing. Luft has claimed to have incriminating information about Hunter Biden. He's gone missing in Cyprus. That's according to press reports. One source does tell CNN the House Oversight Panel has not investigated Luft's claims at this point. It's just not clear what type of allegations he might be privy to. And this follows several attempts by Congressman Comer to substantiate allegations that he's made that Biden family members have profited off the family name. He's also alleged that the president may have been improperly influenced by some of those financial dealings. Joining us now is CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot here. Uh, when I read the what we just told our viewers, uh, that news that you guys broke yesterday about who this informant was, there's that. There's a separate so-called whistleblower. Mm -hmm. What do people need to know this morning? 
Well, look, Poppy, I think it remains to be seen how much of an informant this guy actually is. You know, this is an Israeli professor who claims to have incriminating information about Hunter Biden. The committee has not investigated, corroborated that information, as you pointed out. And again, the hitch here is this is someone who, by his own account on his own Twitter page, was accused by the U.S. of arms dealing. According to international press reports, he was apparently arrested in Cyprus, and then he either went missing or skipped out on his bail. Again, this is according to international press reports. We have not been able to independently confirm that. And when I reached out to the attorney for Galuft, he did not want to speak to me. So it's really unclear what exactly the committee is hoping to learn from this gentleman, if they will ever be able to learn anything from this gentleman. But I think their hope is that they would be able to press him for more information related to their broader investigation that they're doing into the Biden family's business dealings, Bobby. And this all comes amid the investigations overall. We've seen these press conferences coming from the chair of the House Oversight, Comer, that you just heard from there. What actually is the latest on these investigations and where they stand and whether or not they actually have any evidence tying it to the president directly, as they've kind of implied? Yeah, I mean, we heard from Comer about this last week. He had a press conference. You know, they subpoenaed all these bank records, and so they have been getting information, and they alleged that there were millions of dollars in payments from foreign entities that were going to some members of the Biden family, including Hunter Biden, but they were not able to show any payments that were going directly to Joe Biden, either when he was vice president, when he left office, or, you know, really at any point. So they haven't been able to corroborate this sort of central allegation that Comer has trotted out there that's somehow Joe Biden could be compromised by his family's business dealings. We also heard a lot of frustration from Republicans that DOJ should be doing more on this front. Listen to what Nancy Mace had to say. DOJ needs to get off its ass and investigate. We've done the work for them so they can't screw it up now. If these allegations, any of these allegations are proven true, then someone with the last name Biden needs to be charged prosecuted, and maybe spend a little time in prison to take to account and responsible for the actions they've taken today. So that's a pretty harsh order from Nancy Mace. But even in the report Republicans put out last week, they didn't allege that there was anything illegal about the payments that they were actually able to document. And we know from our previous reporting at CNN, there's been this long-running criminal investigation into Hunter Biden. The Justice Department did look at payments from foreign entities to Hunter Biden as part of that probe, looking for potential money laundering, looking for violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. We, of course, know that now that probe uh, has narrowed that sort of leg of it has fizzled, and they're now looking at a false statement as well as tax issues. Caitlin, Poppy? A lot going on there. A lot. Thank <laughs> goodness <laughs> for Sarah Murray. Yep. Serious. That's what we always say. Uh, this is really interesting. This caught my eye yesterday. An emotional pitch that is being made to Russians, Russian citizens from the CIA to become spies for the United States. How they are recruiting them using the dark web. We have seen an exclusive reporting on that next. New video just in overnight, missiles lighting up the skies over Kyiv during a Russian aid raid, air raid, I should say. The head of the Kyiv city administration called it a, quote, complex assault from multiple directions simultaneously using UAVs, cruise missiles and probably ballistic missiles. And that, quote, the attack was exceptional in its density. The office added that the vast majority of Russia's targets in Kyiv's airspace were de- detected and destroyed. Now, this marks the eighth attack on Kyiv since just the beginning of this month. Also, this just in, the Bosch 
boss of the Russian mercenaries, the Wagner Group, is claiming that an American citizen died fighting in the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut overnight. Evgeny Prigozhin posted a video inspecting a body and what he claims to be a U.S. identification document. CNN cannot verify the authenticity of these documents and cannot confirm the nationality of the body shown in that video, but it obviously raises alarm bells. CNN has reached out to the State Department for comment. And speaking, of course, of what's happening in Ukraine, the CIA is now trying to recruit Russian spies. Pretty openly, the agency dropping an emotional two-minute-long video just last night targeting disgruntled Russians. Their goal? Persuade them to share any secrets or sensitive information they may have that could help the CIA. CNN senior national security correspondent Alex Marquardt is joining us live from Washington. Alex, you got an exclusive interview with CIA officials about these efforts. What exactly is it that they're doing here? That's right, Caitlin. And we also got an early look at this video. Now, the CIA officials I sat down with, they told me that they see Russia's war in Ukraine as a rare, even historic opportunity to recruit more Russian spies. Now they're taking their efforts up a notch with this new recruitment video, trying to communicate to Russians who have sensitive information. We know what you're going through and what you have is valuable. Caitlin, they're even quoting Tolstoy and Dostoevsky to try to convince them to get in touch with the CIA. Это та жизнь, о которой я мечтал. Тот путь, который я себе выбрал. Questions being asked in Russian in a new dramatic video by the CIA, just released to try to recruit more Russian spies by appealing to Russians' patriotism, frustrations, and the oppression they face under the Putin regime. CIA officials told CNN in an exclusive interview that the war in Ukraine has created an unprecedented opportunity that they want to capitalize on to recruit new Russian assets. Disaffection with the war will continue to gnaw away at the Russian leadership beneath the steady diet of state propaganda and practiced repression. In the past year of the war, the CIA has been encouraging Russians with valuable information to contact them quietly, securely and anonymously through a portal on the dark web. We're looking around the world for Russians who are as disgusted with that as we are because we're open for business. Instructions have been posted on the CIA's social media accounts. And this new video, after making an emotional pitch to Russian viewers, details how to do that using the dark web browser called Tor. You're not powerless, it says. Contact us in a safe way. The CIA recruitment video was first posted Monday evening on Telegram, the social media app that is highly popular among Russians who can't easily access unfiltered news or other social media sites. I call that hanging out the shingle. You know, spreading the word far and wide that U.S. counterintelligence is open for business and we have deep pockets. And if you want to strike about back against this man you hate, Vladimir Putin, you have an opportunity now to do it safely. CIA officials told CNN they hope the video will resonate beyond intelligence and security officials with people who may not realize that they have sensitive information to share, working, for example, in cyber, tech, finance, and other fields. They may think contacting the CIA is too difficult or too dangerous. The CIA telling CNN they want to demystify that. We need people all through the uh, Russian economy to cooperate with us. We need to know what's going on in this adversary country. There is no direct mention of Putin or Ukraine, nor, CIA officials insist, is it meant to fuel unrest in Russia. Rather, they tell CNN, these are timeless themes that they hope will drive Russians into the arms of the CIA. 
Это всегда будет моя Россия. Я выстою. Моя семья выстоит. Мы будем жить достойно благодаря моим действиям. And the CIA says that their campaign so far during this war to recruit new spies, disaffected Russians, has been successful. They won't say to what degree or how many people they've recruited, but one CIA official told me, in his words, there's contact coming in. And they say they wouldn't be rolling out this new recruitment video if they hadn't already had some success. Caitlin? Huh. Fascinating. That was the most fascinating thing in the morning. Alex, thank you. Thanks, Alex. For months, the price of eggs was soaring. Now that bubble may have cracked. We'll tell you what's behind the big drop ahead. All right, huge number. For the first time, America's debt topped $17 trillion, with Americans having more debt than ever and more falling behind on paying it off. Joining us, CNN anchor, chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. Yeah, that's what we really want to focus Uh-oh. on. Any kind of signs of weakness in these numbers, right? So that debt binge up $2.9 trillion since before the pandemic. So that shows you that people didn't spend on their credit cards, didn't take on a bunch of new debt in the COVID uh, pandemic emergency, and now no. they are. And here are the categories, Poppy. Mortgage debt is the biggest part of our debt. We hold more than that than anything else. Student debt, this has been a pause on student loans. So watch this space when kids have to start, or adults have to start paying their student loan debt. Auto loans, here's the weak spot I saw in here. Auto loan delinquencies for people under 40 yeah. are rising. So people under 40, and because of higher prices because of inflation for the car and higher interest rates. Mm. The average auto loan is like $700 a month. That's a problem for people who are on the younger age of the, of the spectrum here. And credit cards, uh, $986 billion knocking on the door of a trillion dollars in credit card debt. This is a space to watch here because credit card debt with all these higher interest rates, if you are keeping your credit card debt uh, on there, not paying it, about 54% pay their credit card debt in full every month. But for those who don't, if you're only paying the minimum on a $2,000 balance rather at a 20% interest rate, it would take you 15 years and about $2,700 interest to pay it off. Interest alone. Yeah. Uh, What's good news in terms of prices falling? Okay, gas prices are down about 30% from a year ago, and that has been a consistent part of the story. And egg prices, remember when we were all upset about egg prices? Those are coming. The supply chain avian flu problems working themselves out in the uh, egg industry. So that's about a buck fifty. These are retail egg prices. You're paying a dollar fifty less at the grocery store today than you were in January. So some relief. I noticed that. I did too. I bought eggs to make a cake the other day, and I was like, wait a minute. This was like six ninety nine last time I made a cake. (laughs) Thank you, Roman. You're welcome, Galen. Making me hungry. All right, a fifth grade teacher is now under investigation in the state of Florida for showing her students a Disney movie that featured a character who's gay. That teacher is going to join us on that investigation next. Uh, We also have new details about special counsel John Durham's report on the origins of the FBI's Trump-Russia probe, including Durham's interview with Hillary Clinton. A Florida teacher is now under investigation for showing this animated Disney movie that you see here to her fifth grade class. Jenna Barbie played the movie Strange World, which is about a family of explorers and also features a character that is gay. Any sweethearts waiting for you back home, huh? Ah, 
there it is. <laughs> Who is it? Uh, it's no one. Uh-uh. Diazzo. His name is Diazzo. Diazzo, huh? I really like him a lot. I just don't know how to tell him. Shannon Rodriguez, the parent and school board member who reported Barbie for showing her class this movie, says that the movie was shown without approval. It is not a teacher's job to impose their beliefs upon a child. Religious, sexual orientation, gender identity, any of the above. But allowing movies such as this assist teachers in opening a door, and please hear me, they assist teachers in opening a door for conversations that have no place in our classrooms. The school district confirms to CNN the state is investigating Barbie, and this statement was sent home to parents. Quote, while not the main plot of the movie, parts of the story involve a male character having an expressed feeling for another male character. In the future, this movie will not be shown. So we're joined this morning by that fifth grade teacher, Jenna Barbie. Jenna, good morning, and thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I know you're still teaching, right? This is still your class. Um, can you can yeah. you tell us why? You, tell the viewers why you chose to show this movie to the class. I chose this movie because the biggest elements of this movie are about the earth and taking care of it and how it's alive. And my, I'm all about that. I'm a huge person that is an advocate for cleaning up and taking care of the earth every day. So, and that was our segment in science at the time was ecosystems and how they interact. Jenna, I know that you said that you had parents of your students signed permission slips at the beginning of the year when it came to films and what you were going to be showing in your class if it was a PG movie. What is your sense of what this investigation looks like? Are they questioning you? Are they questioning students? Are they questioning parents? What does this actually look like? Um, they've questioned me and they've questioned students. And now the DOE is coming this week to question students more. Um, because I'm, I guess I'm under investigation by this from the school board and the DOE. So it's two different things going on at the same time. Um, it's, it's just a mess. The, the, this was not even a topic that my students even noticed or cared about because it's already an accepted topic in the classroom. Just like how Ms. Rodriguez said, the doors, those doors are open. Those doors are not something that that's new in this public education system. The students have one-to-one -one devices. They're able to have access to all this information already. <laughs> so this is a common theme that is talked about already. So it was not thought anything of until it got brought this much light and this much attention. And now it's definitely a conversation. So if anyone opened a door, you've said that not only you've been questioned in this investigation, some of your students, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm just interested. Like you yes, go to. You go to class every day. Uh, what, how is this impacting your students? Are kids talking about it in class? Yes, now it has to be, now it's something that has to be constantly shut down because now it's a common conversation. It's something that students are continuing to want to talk about and ask me more questions about and ask me, why is this such a big deal? Because to us, we just saw it. It was, it's not even a theme of the movie. It's an element. And the students didn't think anything of it. I didn't think anything of it. And now it's like, whoa, Miss Barbie, you're in so much trouble because of this. Why is it so wrong? Why is it so wrong? And like, how do I answer that? So I just have to say, oh, go ask your parents. Oh, go ask your parents. Mm -hmm. But that's what we're making them think, that this is so wrong that their teacher is under fire for it. And Jenna, you've said you feel that this is a targeted attack. What do you mean when you say that? 
Um, this, that same school board member is currently going around right now trying to, well, along with, you know, the whole, what DeSantis is doing, trying to get rid of all basically diversity elements out of schools completely. Like they're trying to strip individuality and diversity to fit one common agenda and it's ruining everything. It's not what America stands for. I think let's let our viewers listen to what that parent said um, that complained uh, about you doing this in in a recent school board meeting. Here it is. It is not a teacher's job to impose their beliefs upon a child. Religious, sexual orientation, gender identity, any of the above. But allowing movies such as this assist teachers in opening a door, and please hear me, they assist teachers in opening a door for conversations that have no place in our classrooms. We had played that for the viewers in the introduction, but I just want to give you a chance to respond. Yeah, so that's what she's missing and what these parents are missing is they're not in the school system. That that just shows me that she's ignorant and has not come and volunteered at all because our, these conversations, these doors, they're open. These students have one-to-one devices. The amount of things that they're able to pull up that we have to shut down, they, they, these conversations, these doors that she's talking about that's t- telling me I'm stripping her rights as a parent, those rights are gone when your child's in the public school system because there are students talking about these things. It's where they get 90% of their socialization for the day. And we can't shut down every conversation every child has. Thank you for being with us this morning. Keep so, us posted. It's just... I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, it's okay. It's just, she's pointing fingers, but you, what she's saying is that we are indoctrinating by showing these things, but actually we're just showing a representation of our students that are already there. Indoctrinating is going around and telling you, you can't do all these things. She's pushing the beliefs that all these things are wrong. And that is indoctrinating. Jenna Barbie, thank you very much. And I would note we did reach out our team to Shannon Rodriguez. She's mm-hmm. welcome on the show, of course, any day as well. We appreciate your time this morning. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. about the man in custody accused of attacking a staffer and intern for Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly with a baseball bat. The suspect enraged on a pair and didn't have any particular motivation. We're going to have to reassess the security we provide or don't provide district offices. It is very concerning and it's quite frankly scary. The clock is ticking closer to what would be the first debt default in American history. We don't actually know what the economic impacts will really be, and that's the scariest part. But the fact of the matter is, they're now negotiating, and they have to. You've got to have something done by this weekend, and we are nowhere near any of that. After four years and millions of taxpayer dollars, the Durham report is out. It's got his own information, which is this information, plus, plus, plus. This report does nothing. It is absolutely a big zero. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to launch his White House bid by the end of the month. We've had three election cycles in a row where we've had poor results. I mean, that's just the fact. The question is whether he can prove he's the right man for the job. Martha Stewart is the oldest Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue cover model. Here's someone who really has it going on in more ways than one, and let's celebrate it. To be on the cover at my age was a challenge. All of us should think about good living and not about aging. 
I love that Martha Stewart story. We're going to get to that in a moment because it's really, it's really good. And you're going to want to see that. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. There's a lot of headlines though going on, especially out of Washington. A lot of headlines and very sad news. Two congressional staffers are now out of the hospital, at least. But this is after a man with a bat, a baseball bat, attacked Democratic Congressman Jerry Connolly's office in Virginia. Connolly says the suspect attacked an intern who was working the front desk and then struck a senior aide in the head with his metal bat. CNN has obtained surveillance video. It appears to show that same suspect chasing a woman in his neighborhood just minutes before the attack. After that incident, police say the suspect drove to Connolly's office, which was about six miles away. And the suspect's father tells CNN his son has mental health issues. Connolly says the suspect had previously contacted his office to ask him to help with something. And he made some, quote, bizarre statements to Connolly's staff. So let's bring in Washington correspondent Sunland Sarfati. This is terrifying and it raises real questions about security at congressional offices, not just on Capitol Hill, but those field offices. That's absolutely right, Poppy. This was such a brazen attack. And notably, the two staffers that were hit with that metal baseball bat, they have now been released from the hospital. In an interview with CNN, Congressman Connolly says it was only the quick thinking of his staff that prevented many more from being injured in this incident. And he says a suspect entered his office filled with an out-of-control rage demanding to see him. The congressman said that this is a person that had contacted his office in the past. He reached out for help on an issue. And his staff did sense, he said, in talking to him, that he was engaged in some bizarre statements, but he never made any threats like this violent attack. (laughs) Terrifying video caught on a home security camera. Neighbors say it shows the man now accused of attacking a Virginia congressman's staffers allegedly chasing a woman with a bat minutes earlier. I don't think there is a motivation. I think we're talking about real mental illness. Several neighbors heard the commotion. Daniel Ashley says it wasn't until he heard about a possible connection to the attack on the congressman's office that he started looking through his security camera footage. That was the clip that had the woman running away from the guy with the baseball bat. She's screaming and terrified. I heard about the Jerry Connolly thing on the news, but I had no idea that I was so close to home. Democratic Congressman Jerry Conley says Monday morning the alleged attacker walked into his district office in Fairfax in an enraged state. Turns out that he had already used that bat to like destroy uh, older woman's uh, windshield uh, out further west. Um, so he was on a tear. He did arrive here in a vehicle um, and he walked to the office um, and began swinging the bat striking two staff members. The congressman telling CNN he wasn't there at the time. A man had come into our office with a uh, metal baseball bat and asked for me. And when told that I was at an event, he proceeded to attack the young intern who was at the front desk on her first day. And then when the noise and commotion became clear, others came running out of their offices and he attacked my outreach director and uh, hit her badly on the back of her head. 
And the suspect's father told CNN he has tried to get help for his son in the past. The 49-year-old was also known to law enforcement. He was charged in January of 2022 with felony assault on a law enforcement officer, among other charges. Now, the district attorney at that time declined to prosecute. For this incident, he is facing charges for one count of aggravated malicious wounding and one count of malicious wounding. Poppy? Salman, thank you for the update. Hope that those staffers fully recover. Yeah, we're thinking of them. Also happening today in Washington, it is round two of debt limit talks that are going to take place between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Other top congressional lawmakers will be in the room, but those are the two who will be the ones that make the decisions. Last night, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen reiterated her warning that the U.S. is not going to be able to pay its tab potentially as early as June 1st, just 15 days and 16 hours or so away. Of course, that comes as Speaker McCarthy says he does not seem optimistic about the the talks as they've progressed so far. We're only a couple weeks away. And if you look at the timeline to pass something in the House and pass something in the Senate, You've got to have something done by this weekend, and we are nowhere near any of that. We are nowhere near any of that, he warns. Joining us now, CNN White House correspondent Arlette Sines. Arlette, obviously there's a big question here because of the timing, given how long it does take anything to get done on Capitol Hill, as McCarthy was noting there. Also, as you know, President Biden is set to leave tomorrow. Uh, So what are the questions looking like when it comes to what the White House is willing to move on? Because it does appear, you know, they're negotiating now, at least having these discussions with Republicans. Well, Caitlin, the question about whether they can actually reach a deal could get its next big clue this afternoon with that face-to-face meeting between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. You heard McCarthy there saying that he believes there needs to be a deal by this weekend, though the White House has yet to put any type of public time frame on that. But we all know how long it takes to move legislation through Capitol Hill, as well as trying to corral each of the caucuses together. Additionally, they're facing that time constraint with President Biden set to leave for Japan tomorrow. And aides I've spoken to have acknowledged the very real possibility that he could leave without an agreement and with those staff level talks continuing. Now, the public messaging on both sides has been wildly different. President Biden really striking this optimistic tone, saying that there's a desire from both sides to try to reach an agreement. While you heard McCarthy there saying that he doesn't hasn't seen any movement himself in these discussions. But sources have told us that behind the scenes that those staff level talks have been continuing in earnest with each side uh, describing them as constructive. You've seen items that the White House and officials on Capitol Hill have put on the table, including permitting reform, as well as trying to claw back some of those COVID relief funds. But there are still some real sticking points when it comes to the duration of spending caps and also work requirements for certain government aid aid programs. So a bit later this afternoon, all eyes will be on President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as they are really the two men who will have to finalize any type of agreement when it comes to raising the debt ceiling with that X date of June 1st quickly looming. Yeah. And Arlette, you mentioned work requirements there. I saw President Biden over the weekend seeming to leave the door open to maybe being on board with stricter work requirements for some of these benefits, the food stamps and SNAP benefits that go out. Is that something, though, that progressive Democrats would be on board with? It seems like that's what we've heard some criticism already so far from that. What is the White House saying about it? 
Yeah, you've already seen some progressives coming out, expressing some frustration with those comments. The president had noted that in the past he has voted for some work requirements, but he simply said that uh, when it comes to Medicaid, that it would be very difficult to get him on board with that. You quickly saw the White House issue a clarification saying that the president would not support any work requirements which would push people into poverty or take away Americans' health care. So uh, for the time being, the White House has been saying that he will not agree to those work requirements when it comes to Medicaid and potentially food stamps. But those are all items that Republicans have really been pushing for in these negotiations uh, as they're trying to get to more spending cuts. All right, Arlette, we'll see what happens at 3 p.m. today during that meeting at the White House. Thank you. Also this morning, the Durham report is out. It marks the end of a four-year investigation into the origins of the FBI's Trump-Russia probe. The special counsel, John Durham, was handpicked by Bill Barr in the Trump administration. And this report cast doubt on the FBI's decision to even launch that full investigation into connections between the Trump campaign and Russia during the 2016 election. But it also, we should note, falls short of proving that it was nothing more than a political witch hunt. Durham's report is at odds with the 2019 Justice Department Inspector General probe, which acknowledged problems with the Mueller investigation, but ultimately concluded there was sufficient justification to do the probe, to open the inquiry. And that's a big difference. Let's get context and some background here from our senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, is also former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and a prosecutor. Good to have you. Okay, so just get us to why we're here who John Durham is, what the assignment was. Yeah, Poppy. So our story begins four years ago, spring of 2019, when a different special counsel, Robert Mueller, was wrapping up his report. Now, I know you'll remember Robert Mueller found that Russia did try to interfere in the 2016 presidential election and the Trump campaign knew about and expected to benefit from that experience. However, Mueller also found there was no criminal conspiracy between Donald Trump and Russians. Well, Trump very quickly declared victory. He claimed no collusion, no obstruction, not exactly an accurate take on Mueller's findings. And Donald Trump began this refrain, investigate the investigators. What happened a couple weeks later? Sure enough, Donald Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, named John Durham and told him to look into the origins of the Russia investigation. Durham, by the way, had been a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, but also had been a federal prosecutor for 35-plus years. He had also been praised by Democrats like Chris Murphy and Merrick Garland, the attorney general, uh, Joe Biden. The president left him in place for all of this. Walk us through his findings. Yeah, so... Big report yesterday, 300-plus pages. Here are the key findings by John Durham. He found there is no actual evidence of collusion between Trump and Russia at the start of the investigation. Now, you're never going to have all the inve- all the information right up yeah. front, but Durham says that this thing should have ended and never become a full-blown investigation. Durham also criticizes DOJ and the FBI. He says they relied on raw unanalyzed and uncorroborated intelligence. He said they should have done more diligence before they relied on some of the things they relied on, including the infamous Steele dossier. And Durham notes that there was a predisposition to investigate Trump by some members on the team. Durham does cite email and text exchanges between certain members of the team that clearly show they were anti-Trump and wanted him to lose the election. They do, and we'll get to those with Andy McCabe, who was on the team, who's named 60 times almost in this report, what he thinks of those text messages. But before you go, there is a departure in the Durham report from the Mueller report. Yeah. How do you square the two? Can you? What should Americans take away this morning when they say, well, the Mueller report told us this, but the Durham report tells us this? Yeah, so the Mueller report said this investigation was properly predicated. We were right to go ahead also 
also, DOJ's inspector general said there were problems with some of the things the FBI did, but the, but the investigation was properly predicated and should have gone forward. Also, let's remember, the Republican-controlled Senate Intelligence Committee in 2020 found that there was ample basis mm-hmm. for this investigation to move forward. Hey, Ellie Honig, thank you for helping us All digest right. it. Appreciate it very, very much. Caitlin. Also this morning, we're tracking some outraged parents in New York are pulling their children out of school after the city's move to start housing asylum seekers a handful of standal- in a handful of standalone public school gyms. I'm taking them home. Why should they be in there with those adults? Those are men and women. We don't know where these people come from. I just hope they take the proper measures with security. They should have a different type of, you know, building or something for adults. This comes as the mayors of New York, Los Angeles, Denver and Houston are all now asking for a meeting with President Biden as their cities are struggling to find space for the influx of migrants that are being bused to their cities from the southern border each day. Sina Rosa Flores is live in McAllen, Texas with more. Rosa, obviously this is a question and I think that we should note the reason this is happening is officials in these border towns, people like uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott say that it's unfair that their cities have to deal with the majority of the stress of this. But the big question is, you know, these officials in these other cities, what is their solution for here for how to handle this influx and this surge of migrants that they have to deal with? Well, you know, Kaylin, that surge related to Title 42 happened May 9th when I was doing live shots for your show and there were hundreds of migrants who were sleeping in the streets of El Paso Right now, what's going on in the border is, yes, there is a strain of resources because a lot of migrants entered uh, uh, that week. But now what we're seeing is that those numbers are not materializing. The the, um, expected thousands of migrants who were waiting in Mexico, who were going to rush into the United States after Title 42 uh, lifted, has not happened. Now, the administration did see a setback overnight when uh, after the DOJ asked for a stay in that federal case out of Florida and that stay was denied, which means that the Biden administration can no longer release migrants into communities without court dates. So that creates a further strain. Does it create a bottleneck? Absolutely. But there has been such a reduction in the number of migrant encounters on the border by 50% or more that at this point is manageable. Now, the big question is what happened? Why uh, why are these thousands of migrants who were waiting in camps on the Mexican side not crossing over? What I'm hearing from officials and community leaders on the Mexican side is that the tough talk by the Biden administration and the transparency by the Biden administration, in, in, in essence, delivering the message to migrants about the border being closed, the the legal consequences, the fact that they would be barred from reentry for five years, Caitlin, that message is resonating on the Mexican side by these migrants because they're seeing it on their social media now. They're seeing images of migrants being shackled and being boarded on planes and and deported back to their home countries. That appears to be resonating. Now, how long will this last? We don't know, but we're going to be monitoring it. I know you'll be monitoring it closely. Rosa, thank you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, apparently days away from launching his 2024 presidential campaign. We'll talk about his strategy ahead. Also, we have a live look at Louisville, Kentucky, as voters are heading to the polls today to decide which Republican nominee, which Republican candidate is going to face off against the current Democratic governor, Andy Beshear, who is up for re-election. A lot of Republicans are running. We'll tell you what the voters are saying. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Leave each other alone like this on the streets of Philadelphia. One of my favorite songs, one of my favorite movies. A live look this morning at Philadelphia where voters are heading to the polls in the mayoral primary races. Nine Democrats are running for their party's nomination. There's only one Republican candidate. Democrats outnumber Republicans seven to one in the city of Philadelphia. Whoever ultimately emerges as the winner of the mayoral race will likely be a player in the 2024 presidential election, with Pennsylvania poised to be one of the biggest prizes. Of course, that is not the only place where voters are going to the polls today. Republicans in Kentucky are also doing the same thing this morning in a race that is going to test for President Trump's influence over the Republican Party against other potential 2020 rivals, 2024 rivals of his. Voters are deciding who is going to take on the current Democratic governor, Andy Bashir this November. The election could set the stage for what's to come in 2024 as well. It is 12 Republican candidates who are on the ballot today. Three of them have made their way to the front of the pack, and our CNN national politics reporter Eva McKend is in Louisville this morning tracking all of these candidates, not just those three, all 12. Uh, Eva, what's the sense? What are you hearing from voters this morning as they are deciding which Republican they want to go head-to-head with the current governor? Well, good morning to you, Caitlin. It's been a bit slow here at this polling location in Louisville this morning, but about 2,000 polling sites across the state, I'm told. And it has just been a bruising battle between these Republicans as they try to figure out who best to put up against popular incumbent Democrat Andy Bashir. Kentucky is Trump country. State Attorney General Daniel Cameron, a former staffer for Senator Mitch McConnell and a rising star in the party after his 2020 Republican convention speech. That's why I am voting for Donald Trump for president. Cameron is considered a top contender along with Kelly Craft, who served as Trump's ambassador to Canada and later the United Nations. Thank you very much, Kelly. You're doing fantastically well. But Trump has endorsed Cameron, joining him in a tele-rally Sunday night. I have no doubt he's going to be a fantastic governor. The endorsement resulting in bitter bars traded between the two candidates. Uh, And then I got the endorsement, and your team has been scrambling ever since. And in TV ads. Only one candidate for governor has been endorsed by President Trump. While Kraft has focused in on Cameron's ties to McConnell. My opponents, career politicians, who'd rather follow than lead. And his handling over the Breonna Taylor case, allowing the Justice Department to investigate Louisville's police department. They failed Kentucky's law enforcement. Kraft, who is the wife of a billionaire coal magnate, has loaned her campaign more than $9 million, while Cameron has raised a total of nearly $1.5 million. They both are cutting each other's throat. That's what I think. And you don't like that? No. No, they're slandering each other. Cameron has focused on a law and order message and would make history as the first black Republican governor elected in the U.S. Why do you think that you are best suited to take on Governor Bashir? We've seen a governor uh, who has sat idly by as the far left has tried to move into our state. We need us to have a governor that says enough and will stand up for the values of Kentucky. Kraft has centered her campaign on culture war clashes. We have to take woke not only out of our education, but out of our government, out of our family, out of our businesses. Agriculture Commissioner Ryan Quarles has focused his campaign on rural areas of Kentucky. Let me be the candidate that unites our state. Hoping to win over voters who may be turned off by Kraft and Cameron's Trump-fueled fight. 
all politics is local, that's kind of a test here. Uh, can you still run a campaign in, in the state uh, talking about local issues, running a very localized campaign and win? Or, or have we entered an era in politics where if you're running for local office, you have to have a position on the Ukraine? So Cameron expected to vote here a little later this morning. Unfortunately, uh, the forecast calls for rain and already these primaries are low turnout affairs. 10 to 15 percent of registered voters, about 3.4 million registered voters in Kentucky. Only 10 to 15 percent uh, typically turn out for these primaries. The secretary of state's office hopes that their own projection is wrong and that more people, uh, Poppy and Caitlin, do turn out to vote. Yeah, even McKen, we'll see how many people do come out to vote. Might be more people running <laughs> than voting. That's such a low percentage. Oh, thank you, Eva. Joining us now, national correspondent for The Washington Post, Philip Bump. Great to have you. Good morning. Of course. What do you make of this? Uh, you've got DeSantis choosing not to back Cameron, DeSantis right. choosing to back um, Kraft. And so that's where he and Trump are departing on this one. What does it tell you? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'd say there's probably two factors at play here. The first is it's important to remember Trump is now the Republican establishment, right? And so if you want to run or establish yourself as being against, you know, the, the powers of being a Republican Party, to some extent you have to challenge Donald Trump. And so I think Ron DeSantis is making a play here to not only stand against Trump, but also stand against Mitch McConnell, who's seen as being allied with Cameron, uh, who is the, the front runner in most polling, uh, but also, you know, Kraft has a lot of money. And if you are running for president and Kraft is not likely to win, according to the polls, it doesn't hurt to have an ally in, in Kelly Kraft. There you go. It's just also interesting because obviously Kelly Kraft worked in the Trump administration. Yeah. He nominated her to serve as his ambassador to Canada. So we'll see what Republicans decide here. But it is this proxy war between Trump's influence, DeSantis's influence. So DeSantis's endorsement was kind of quiet. Uh, but the Florida governor, we are now told, is basically just days away from finally officially jumping into this race. He is still using the power of his of being governor of Florida to advance what that campaign is going to look like. Yesterday, he signed this legislation. It would basically prevent public schools and colleges and universities in the state of Florida from funding diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. This is what he said about what he was signing yesterday. We are supposed to have this big red wave, and other than like Florida and Iowa, I didn't see a red wave across this country. And so I think the party has uh, developed a, a culture of losing. I think that there's uh, not uh, accountability. What results are you producing for people? That's really what matters. Uh, you can sit there and talk about cable news, social media, all these other things that, that, that people are fixated on. How are you going to be able to actually bring about big change to make people's lives better? So that was while he was signing, he was making these comments about this, that was his referencing what he keeps jabbing at Trump, saying there's this culture of losing the Republican Party, basically saying that Trump's to blame for it. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a tough argument to make when Trump's beating by 20 points in most national polls, right? I think that his launch, which we expect to be imminent here, is really a key, key moment for DeSantis. I mean, obviously it is for all candidates, right? But if he doesn't show that he can gain ground against Trump at this point in time, he is the guy who the people who don't like Donald Trump are pinning their hopes on. And that depends on them thinking he can beat Trump. If he doesn't get a big boost from this, if he doesn't actually close that gap, they're going to start looking around saying, is there someone else that can be our anti-Trump guy if it's not Ron DeSantis? Well, what was the front of the New York Post, remember, a few months ago? Mm. And no one's I'm not going to remember. <laughs> the future. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that was right Thank after the 2022 election. Yeah, but I'm saying what? Right. right. 
It's amazing to see the gap now between them and the polling. I know he's right. not officially running it, but I wonder what you think of what caused that. Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, that, that was immediately after the 2022 midterms when Donald Trump was getting a lot of blame for the underperformance that DeSantis just mentioned there. Yeah. And DeSantis had just won this huge, massive victory. Yeah. But now what we're seeing, too, is that, you know, for DeSantis, a lot of his politics were centered on COVID. COVID is not as salient as it used to be. And at the same time, Donald Trump is a very effectively parlaying, you know, the indictment in Manhattan. These other, you know, the Durham report he's going to start seizing on, of course, as, hey, look, once again, they're coming to get me because they really want to get you. That's always a shtick. And, and it Resonance. And it is still <clears throat> early, though, we should note. You know, we oh, still have some time to go. And what you hear from DeSantis's allies is, well, look how handily he won re-election and right. what, how his political su- success has changed from when he first was re-elected to when he was re-elected. Right. And the question, of course, of whether or not that can translate on the national stage, we still just really don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, he, last November he ran against a guy who used to be a Republican, became a Democrat. You know, Donald Trump switched parties as well. Donald Trump is not Charlie Crest, right? I mean, he yeah. is a very, very different opponent. Ron DeSantis has work cut out for him. And he's obviously very clearly trying to run to Donald Trump's right by signing these policy measures. But what, where that so falls short is— So many of them. Oh, uh, yeah. But, but the problem right. is he's trying to make up for Trump's personality— which is very aggressive and anti-establishment by doing legislative stuff. And it just isn't the same resonance. And I think voters feel that distinction. And now Trump is criticizing DeSantis for the abortion bill that he signed as well. A lot of dynamics here at play. We'll see how it only changes once he's officially in the race. But thank you for joining us this morning. Overnight in Ukraine, there was a complex assault. That's a quote on the capital of Kyiv. Of course, that is the eighth attack on the city in just this month alone. We'll get the latest for you from the ground. Also, the $48 billion aid package that Congress passed for Ukraine in December is likely to run out this summer. A major question about what's next. Former Trump national security advisor and former U.N. ambassador John Bolton is here to talk about that and much more. We have new video just in overnight, so showing bright flashes in the sky over Kyiv, of course, the capital of Ukraine. That was during a Russian air raid. The head of the Kyiv city administration said it was a complex assault from multiple directions simultaneously and that the attack was ex- exceptional in its density. The official added that most were detected and destroyed. This is the eighth attack on Kyiv that has happened just since the beginning of this month. The commander in chief of the armed forces of Ukraine has also said that overnight, Russia attacked Ukraine with 18 missiles of various types all across the country that were intercepted by air defense forces. We are all now also told from the Russian defense ministry claiming they've destroyed one of those American Patriot missile systems. We'll see, of course, uh, what the U.S. says about that. CNN's international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson is live in eastern Ukraine. Nick, tell us what you've been seeing on the ground. So what we understand is these missiles that that were targeted on Kyiv came in from the north, from the south and from the east, launched by air, launched by uh, from land and also launched by the sea. Perhaps most significant, six of them launched from aircraft were hypersonic, these super fast missiles that are very hard to intercept. All of them intercepted. Um, The cruise missiles that were fired from ships in the Black Sea to the south of Ukraine, all of those um, intercepted or neutralized 
place. And there were three of the large Iskander land-based missile systems fired, it seems, from Russian territory towards Kyiv. Those intercepted. We've heard from Ukrainian officials recently that the Russians are trying to penetrate, trying to find a way to penetrate the air defenses in Kyiv. And I think what we're witnessing here is the fact that the Ukrainians, at least in their capital, have substantial air defenses. It's a whole lot different uh, down here, close to the front lines in the east of Ukraine. There are air defenses. There aren't as many. They're not as effective, not as sophisticated. A town near to here was hit overnight, an apartment building crushed there. The fight inside the town of Bakhmut still continues. The Wagner mercenary boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin, claims that an American uh, fighter was killed. Uh, there is no evidence yet to back this up. He says he will be. The body will be returned and repatriated to the United States. Prigozhin, though, has very little credibility and it's all about propaganda. This cannot be taken at face value. Yeah, it certainly can't. We've asked the United States for their response as well. Nick, thank you. The $48 billion Ukraine aid package that Congress approved in December could dry up by this summer. That's according to the Bipartisan Center for Strategic and International Studies. And that's raising fresh concerns over what will happen once that funding runs out with a Republican-controlled House and spending stalled because of ongoing debt ceiling talks. More funding for the war-torn nation may be harder to sell this time around. Let's talk about that and a whole lot more with former Trump National Security Advisor and former U.N. Ambassador John Bolton. Ambassador, good morning. Glad to be with you. Where do you think this goes funding from the United States, from Congress, given the two things I just mentioned? Well, I don't, I don't think further funding from Ukraine really is seriously in trouble. I think, I think what's in trouble and has been for some time is the lack of a clear American and NATO strategy how to bring this war to a successful conclusion. This constant uh, debate over whether we ship this weapon system or that weapon system means that in the aggregate, these weapons are not being used as effectively as they could be to help achieve the objective of getting the Russians out of Ukraine. That's what we need to hear. Can I just ask you on the point of how this ends? It was just stunning to hear what former President Trump said to Caitlin in the CNN town hall last week about the fact that he thinks he would have been able to end the war in 24 hours. Here, here that is. If I'm president, I will have that war settled in one day, 24 hours. How would you settle that war in one day? Because I'll meet with Putin, I'll meet with Zelensky. They both have weaknesses and they both have strengths. And within 24 hours, that war will be settled. It'll be over. It'll be absolutely over. Do you over. want Ukraine to win this war? I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I well, just wonder what it was like for you to sit there and listen to those answers. Well, here's the silver lining. Those answers show why Donald Trump is not fit to be president of the United States. No rational person believes that you can get the Ukrainians and the Russians to agree how to resolve it in 24 hours. And the very fact he says he doesn't think in terms of winning and losing shows he's utterly out of touch with what the war is all about and what the implications of Russia's aggression against Ukraine are all around the world. You once said that he barely knew where Ukraine was. And his notion that it, one thing he repeated that night as well was that he said if he was in office that Putin would not have invaded Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, Trump has this impression that, that uh, uh, foreign leaders, especially adversaries, hold him in high regard, that he's got a good relationship with Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un. Uh, in fact, the exact opposite is true. I have been in those rooms with him when he's met with those leaders. I believe they think he's a laughing fool. And the idea that somehow his presence in office would have deterred Putin is flatly wrong. If anything, if Trump had won a second term and done what I think he 
intended to do, which is get out of NATO, Putin would have just waited and let him do it. And the, even the weakening of NATO would have, made, would have made it a lot easier for the Russians to have prevailed. You uh, turn into what's happening in Turkey right now in this runoff in two weeks. You have said that Erdogan, the Turkish president, is a Donald Trump of Turkish elections. If Erdogan does not remain in power, what does that mean for the NATO alliance, for the United States vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? Well, I think there's a lot of question exactly how far Erdogan went to try and fix the first round, steal the election, let's be blunt about it. Uh, and I think really international attention has got to be focused on the next two weeks to see if he steals the second round. Uh, I'm afraid if he wins uh, that, that there will be real damage done to the NATO alliance. And I think we need to consider whether to suspend or even expel Turkey. If Erdogan is defeated, however, I think there's every reason to think that Turkey will, will return to being a more normal NATO member, not, not necessarily in every respect, but it would be a significant plus not only in Europe, uh, where we face the Ukraine situation, but in the Middle East, where Erdogan has what can only be described as neo-Ottomanist aspirations to recreate a greater Turkey. And this is something that, uh, uh, that really is gravely threatening in an already very unstable region. Yeah, we'll find out in two weeks what that runoff looks like. Back here at home yesterday, John Durham issued that pretty scathing report about the FBI. He was looking into the investigations of the Russia probe. You know, the report was scathing. He faulted them for, for starting the investigation. But there weren't any of the blockbuster revelations that Trump had been promising or his allies, you know, saying it was the crime of the century. You once called the Mueller investigation a witch hunt. Do you still stand by that comment? Well, I was struck at how uh, much of Durham's report followed the D Department of Justice Inspector General investigation of, of the investigation of Russia collusion. Uh, and, and I think Durham hit it on the head when he said there was a predisposition to investigate Trump. I've had a lot of dealings with the FBI over many years, beginning back in the Reagan administration when I served at the Department of Justice. I think it's an outstanding institution. I think 99 percent of the people in the FBI are patriotic Americans, really salt of the earth. But there are a number of them over the years who think they walk on water. And I think a lot of those people were involved in the Hillary Clinton investigation in 2016 and in the Trump investigation. And I think what the IG and the Durham report show is that their power went to their head. And that is dangerous in an institution like the FBI. But you can criticize that. Do you still think the Mueller probe, though, in and of itself into what it was looking into and the, the charges against the Russians was a witch hunt? There was no, there was no evidence of collusion at all. What, what they looked at in the, in the case of Russian contacts with the Trump campaign on the part of the campaign were incompetence and stupidity, not, not an effort to collude with the Russians. Yeah, they found the links. And Believe they, me, if I, if I thought there, were evident, there was evidence of Donald Trump colluding with Russia, I would, I would, I would be getting it out there. There just, there just isn't any, for good or ill. Can I just ask you one other question before we go, which is another comment Trump made on, when it was speaking of the rule of law last Wednesday night, is he left the door open to pardoning mm -hmm. people who were charged with assaulting cops on January 6th, the Proud Boys convicted of seditious conspiracy, what did you make of him saying that he would consider pardoning most of them? Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's virtually treasonous for the president to say he would pardon people who are trying to disrupt the work of Congress. It's another example why he's not fit to be president. If anybody wants to know what a Trump administration would look like when he's pardoning uh, the people who rioted on January the 6th, I think that's all you need to know. John Bolton, as always, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you. This morning.
Okay, a question this morning about your health. Do you use sugar substitutes? The World Health Organization says it is not the best strategy for weight loss. We have more on that ahead. And a close and scary encounter for a kayaker in Hawaii. Watch this. Oh, 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 that's a shark. The kayaker just happened to have his GoPro camera rolling as the shark slammed into his boat while he was fishing. He didn't suffer any injuries and says the attack helps put life in focus. I realize that life is short, time is short on earth. Um, make the most of it, be nice to people, all that stuff. Artificial sweeteners are often a go-to for those trying to lose weight, but the World Health Organization is now saying people should think twice before using them. Joining us now is CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell. What's the new guidance? What are they saying to, to think twice about? Yeah, so you know, um, in 2015, the World Health Organization put out guidelines saying people should reduce their sugar intake. And they said since then, there's been a lot of interest in artificial sweeteners to replace those. Well, now they've looked at a huge body of evidence about whether that actually helps with reducing body weight over long periods of time. And they say that actually doesn't work over the long term. Uh, they said that's true for both adults and kids. And on top of that, using these artificial sweeteners, they say may increase the risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular diseases. So what they're saying is that people should reduce the sweetness of the diet altogether starting early in life to improve their health. They recommend things like switching over to fruit or just trying to get used to having less sweetness in your diet. Is it all sweeteners? Every single one of those packets? Every single one of those artificial sweeteners that has no calories. So the things to look for are things like aspartame, saccharin, sucralose, even stevia, which is something people think is yeah. you know, more natural. Uh, that's something the WHO warns against too. What about monk fruit? That one is on the list, too. Anything oh, with really? no calories in it. All yeah. right. All right. Thank you, Meg. Appreciate it. Good to have you. Thank you, Meg. Thanks. President Biden is set to meet today with congressional leaders, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Once again, they're going to try to get a little bit closer to an agreement on the death ceiling. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace will join us to discuss. Also, Martha Stewart at 81 years old, adding Sports Illustrated cover model to her already impressive resume. We'll tell you more next. So good. more CNN this morning to come after the break. In their most anticipated issue of the year, Sports Illustrated is unveiling a diverse lineup of cover models, including that is Martha Stewart, folks, at 81 years young. The business tycoon on the cover, as well as singer-songwriter Kim Petras, who is the magazine's second transgender cover model for its swimsuit edition. In a statement, Sports Illustrated says, while the industry wavers on its arbitrary notion of beauty, our issue has stayed the course, showcasing the women of today, the women shaping the future. So happy to bring in editor-in-chief of Glamour, Sam Barry, who has been so good at sort of reinventing Glamour and showing all of the sides of beauty in every age, every shape, every color. Talk Martha Stewart. Oh, I loved it. Also, I loved it. I, I loved not only Martha, right? We can come to her 81 years of age. She's the oldest Sports Illustrated swimsuit model um, cover. And I think it was interesting. I saw it being shared all over social yesterday. And what was nice to see was a lot of people saying, she looks good. She looks so hot. And they weren't using the qualifier for her age because she looks hot, <laughs> she period. She does. <laughs> 
They shot that. it in the Dominican Republic, and I think we've we've seen the tease from Martha, right? We've seen her on her Instagram put photos of her poolside. And what's really nice about Martha, I think, is she is the mother of reinvention. As the New York Times said yesterday, do not try to pigeonhole Martha Stewart. She was a glamour college woman of the year in the 60s. She had a catering business in the 70s. She had this lifestyle empire in the 90s. She's now Snoop Dogg's BFF and a swimsuit <laughs> cover model. Are you surprised by it, by the choice that they made? No, I, I, I wasn't. I actually was really impressed with it. I think I would have been surprised by it if we were talking the 90s or the early 2000s when we grew up with magazines as girls. There was a really defined what a cover star would look like. She yeah. was a certain age. She often looked a certain way. And what you're seeing from the breadth of what Sports Illustrated had yesterday on their covers, including age, size diversity, they had a trans woman on the cover, you're seeing that they're leaning in magazines are representing what's happening in the world around them. And it is not this kind of finite version of what sexy or swimsuit model looks like. By the way, we're just showing, let's pull it up again, uh, Glamour, 1961. That's Martha Stewart. Yeah, she was um, a college woman of the college year. College woman of the year. But also we're great. seeing a Glamour, you know, our older women covers do really well, right? We just shot, last year we shot uh, Jane Fonda, 60 years after she was first shot for Glamour. We've had, you know, a 98-year-old on the cover, Betty Reed Soskin. And what we're seeing is not, it's not only the women in those decades, right? 60s, 70s and 80s that want to hear from those women. The women in their 20s and 30s want to know what they can learn from these women, what they can learn from their life story. Yeah. And Martha's got a lot of life that she's telling us about. Yeah, what do you think that is? What are the lessons that they have? Because I think most people maybe think that they know Martha Stewart, but you just listed a lot of the things that aren't as obvious about her. I don't think we'll... Like, she is so amazing at, at reinventing herself, right? And she's gone through trials and tribulations, as we've seen in the past. And I think she is... Uh, she never gets bored. And I think she said in the Sports Illustrated story, if, I've, if I'm stopped... If I'm done changing, I'm done. And she's constantly changing. She's constantly surprising her audience. She's one of these um, these women that are really good on, I don't know if you follow her on Instagram. It's really enjoyable. And Martha Stewart? Yes. Oh, I definitely follow her on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Her Instagram's amazing. And she never takes herself too seriously. No, which she's is got wonderful humor. 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 Yeah, but she'll be like, I just had this amazing smoked salmon and caviar and fresh eggs and rode my horses and planted six tomato plants. Like, her updates. It's a good life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a she good life. She did say she was doing a lot of Pilates for the cover, so I've got to get back <laughs> Well, it Pilates. shows. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great having you. And Seed In This Morning continues right now. This individual caused mass destruction in your office, too. Yeah, after he was denied access to more staff members he could hurt. Uh, he turned his fury on the office itself and a lot of broken glass, destroyed computers, some furniture. That's Congressman Jerry Connolly there speaking after a man attacked staffers at his field office in his district. The suspect now under arrest this morning and the congressman says his staffers do have non-life-threatening injuries. One of them was just on her first day on the job. We're going to get started this morning with the five things to know for this Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. President Biden is set to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy again as time is quickly running out to lift the debt limit and avoid what economists say would be a catastrophic default. We're also expecting a crucial vote today on an abortion ban in North Carolina. Republican state lawmakers are trying to override the Democratic governor's veto and push it through. Also this morning, Congress is going to be taking a hard look at the dangers of artificial intelligence. The man behind the groundbreaking but controversial chat GPT, chat bot, 
known as ChatGPT, is going to be testifying on Capitol Hill just hours from now. Also, in Ukraine, a top Chinese diplomat set to arrive in the capital on a peace mission. His visit comes after Russia launched a huge barrage of missiles overnight and drones against the Ukrainian capital. And the NBA Conference Finals begin tonight. LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers will take on two-time MVP Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets. CNN This Morning starts right now. All right, here's where we begin this hour. President Biden will meet with members, leaders of Congress today, trying to get some sort of progress on a debt ceiling deal. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen reiterating the U.S. could default on its debt two weeks from now. In a letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Yellen writes, Treasury will likely no longer be able to satisfy all of the government's obligations if Congress has not acted to raise or suspend the debt limit by early June and potentially as early as June 1st. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy echoed Yellen's urgency in the halls of Congress yesterday. I appreciate the president finally willing to talk after 97 days, but there is no movement. We're only a couple weeks away. And if you look at the timeline to pass something in the House and pass something in the Senate, you've got to have something done by this weekend. And we are nowhere near any of that. McCarthy added that he believes President Biden needs to remain focused on these negotiations. Of course, he has an upcoming scheduled trip to Asia. He's set to depart tomorrow. President Biden over the weekend said he is optimistic they will be able to reach a deal this week. So for more on this, joining us now is Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina, who serves on the House Oversight and Armed Services Committees. Good morning, Congresswoman. The time, the clock is ticking on this. It does seem like lawmakers are running out of time with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying that he doesn't seem very optimistic about whether or not it deals in the future. Of course, he had said when he became speaker, he would give Republicans 72 hours to review legislation. And President Biden is scheduled to go on that trip tomorrow. So are you optimistic they can reach an agreement this afternoon? I think it's deeply problematic given the trajectory that we're on right now and how close we are to June 1st deadline that the president is traveling out of country. He should be here in, in on the Hill working with Republicans and Democrats to strike some sort of a compromise because guess what? Both, uh, both parties, Republicans and Democrats, got us into this mess and both sides need to come together and show the American people how they're going to get us out of it. Leaving the country right now is not where he should be. He should be here and they should be working something out to balance a budget, rein in spending over the next 10 or 20 years, something reasonable that both sides can agree to. So you think that the president should not take his trip to Asia and it should instead stay inside the United States for, for these talks? Absolutely not. Uh, he needs to show the American people that he cares, that it's not just about tweeting some stuff about Republicans and how bad we are, that he's actually willing to sit down and work with us. Because guess what? This is a nation divided. This is a nation with $32 trillion in debt, $8 trillion of it added by Donald Trump, $4 trillion of it added by Joe Biden over the last six years. That's $12 trillion. It's insane to me that we are having this argument on Twitter and on the airwaves, and we need to get into a room with both sides and figure this thing out. I mean, I have a, a, a plan to balance the budget in five years, a bit aggressive. It's called the penny plan. But heck, I would take 20 years at this point. Just get it done. You've said what Republicans have already passed when it came to spending cuts didn't go far <clears throat> enough in your view. I know a lot of lawmakers, Republicans uh, voted to pass that because they just wanted to get something started and to, for Republicans to be able to say, well, here's what we've passed. 
Now, what is the White House going to do here? But if Kevin McCarthy does reach a deal with President Biden, can Republicans get something that is a watered down version of something you said already didn't go far enough past? Right. If you look at the plan over the next 10 years, 47 trillion versus 52 trillion with a clean debt ceiling, this, these were very mild cuts and they weren't going to balance the budget. They aren't going to go far enough or long enough. Um, you know, I think we'll have to see what that deal looks like, what's negotiated when it comes back. I'm always wanting to start from the strongest position, a position of strength, because you know that you're going to lose people or lose votes or lose different portions of of a bill uh, when it goes into the Senate or when you're negotiating with those across the aisle. And that was my concern. My, my concern also is that neither side's going to hold the other accountable, that we're just going to keep spending into oblivion until we're broke. And guess what? We're pretty much broke right now, um, which is why we need to take it seriously, which is why why I would love to see a plan that balances things out in five years, but I would, I would take 20. That is a huge compromise, and it can be done. But you do believe Republicans, depending on what they come to, what agreement they could potentially come to, are prepared to get less here? Right. And, and you're going to we have to be we have to be prepared to get less. We also have to be prepared to try to figure out how we get votes from the other side. It's a very slim majority. Nobody wants to shut the government down. Nobody wants to see that happen. And, you know, finding a way to work together. That's one of the things that the American people want from us is even when we disagree <clears throat> is finding a path forward. And we're not we're not yet there. It doesn't seem like. And Congressman, you know, as well as I do, what it would mean if the U.S. did default on its debt. As we both noted the time, it's about 15 days away from when the Treasury Secretary is warning that could happen. Last week, I interviewed former President Trump about his position on what he believes Republicans should do here. This is what he said about the U.S. defaulting on its debt. I say to the Republicans out there, congressmen, senators, if they don't give you massive cuts, you're going to have to do a default. The U.S. defaulting would be massively consequential well, for it's, everyone it's, in this room, for all of You don't know. It's psychological. It's really psychological more than anything else. And it could be very bad. It could be maybe nothing. Maybe it's a you have a bad week or a bad day. What'd you make of that? Well, I, I, no one wants certainly the United States uh, to default. And that, it's, in my opinion, is not even on the table. In terms of tax revenue, we collect annually 11 times the interest on the debt. Now, it would mean that we uh, on the Hill and in D.C. would have to prioritize our spending. But default, in my opinion, is not on the table, should not be on the table. The consequences of that globally will be very, very negative, uh, both here in the U.S. and abroad. But we don't have to. We don't have to unless the president wants us to. And if that were to happen, if we were to somehow not strike a deal by June 1st, then we'd have to prioritize spending. Um, no one wants to see cuts to Social Security or vets or Medicare or Medicaid. You can avoid those things. Um, but that means you've got to prioritize spending and put some things on the back burner if we do that. Yeah, I think the White House has also made clear they also do not want to see a default, the nation defaults on its debts. Congressman, while we have you here, you're also a member of House Oversight. We heard from the chair of that committee, Congressman James Comer, earlier on Sunday, speaking about one of the investigations uh, that, the, that the Oversight Committee has underway. This is what he said on Sunday. Well, unfortunately, uh, we can't track down the informant. Uh, we're hopeful that the informant is still there. The whistleblower knows the informant. The whistleblower is very credible. We're hopeful that we can find the informant. Now, remember, these informants are, are kind of in the, the spy business, so uh, they don't make a habit of uh, being seen a lot or, or being high profile or anything like that. 
We're now told that the informant that he was referencing there is an Israeli professor who is wanted by the U.S. for arms dealing and has claimed to have incriminating information about Hunter Biden. He has gone missing in Cyprus, according to international press reports. His attorney has not commented to CNN. What makes the Oversight Committee think that this person would have credible information? Well, I have not spoken with the whistleblower and don't know which 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 uh, information he's referencing with regards to being an informant. We do have multiple whistleblowers, both through the Oversight Committee, Senator Grassley's office. There are multiple individuals that have information. The one thing I can say about this investigation is that it is real. I've seen many suspicious activity reports. We showed bank records last year. And it's the sort of thing, if you were to look at it, if this were any average person, it looks like racketeering. It looks like money laundering and should be investigated to the fullest extent of the law. And obviously, if you have whistleblowers, they need to be credible individuals with credible credible information and credible documentation. Um, and it's something that we're going to follow the facts wherever they lead us. If it leads us to referring charges to the, to the DOJ, then so be it. And if it does not, then that's where we go as well. And so it's just important that uh, that we look at it from every angle and we show the American people what's truthful and what's not. But we haven't seen any direct connection from the committee so far. We didn't see it last week in that press conference. I know you were there speaking as well directly to President Biden. So it doesn't cl appear clear that you're anywhere near referring charges to the Justice Department. I just want to make sure that's clear. Is that right? Well, we're, yeah. We're within 100 days of having subpoena power. This is just the tip of the iceberg. And I will tell you, none of this happens without Joe Biden. I mean, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars, up to nine Biden family members now, including one grandchild, nieces and nephews. None of these people are foreign agents, current wives, ex-wives, a brother, a son. And, it, you know, it just when you look at it from the outset, if it's not illegal, it should be uh, enriching themselves, looking at the revolving door in the White House with meetings with Hunter Biden's business associates and colleagues and those sorts of things. Um, even the Daily Beast came out a couple of days ago saying this should be investigated and follow the facts wherever they lead us, which is what we need to do with an unbiased hand. And I call the balls and strikes, Caitlin, as you know, on both sides of the aisle. And this is real. But is there any evidence that President Biden had any knowledge of this that your committee has so far? Well, he, he's, he denied that there was any communist China money coming into these shell companies. And that was that was untruthful. That was a lie. He said that during the 2020 election. But again, the, the, this is his family tree. They were enriching themselves off of him. Some of his family members appear to possibly be paying uh, Joe Biden's bills in the past. But it doesn't happen without Joe Biden. It doesn't happen without Hunter Biden's clients getting access to the White House. None of that happens. Um, and they made they enriched themselves with tens of millions of dollars. These were adversaries from communist China, corrupt Romanians, Russia, um, and the list goes on. And it's something that we ought to investigate. And if charges need to be brought, we should uh, refer them to the DOJ, because at some point we have to hold both sides accountable when they break the law or when they're unethical. That has to happen. And it has to happen because both sides have corruption issues. They're not they're not perfect. Yeah, I should just note we haven't seen any evidence directly linking President Biden to this. And I'll also note there is a U.S. attorney that is investigating Hunter Biden. That was a U.S. attorney who was appointed by former President Trump. Congressman Nancy Mace, though, thank you for your time this morning. We'll see what progress uh, that White thank House you. and Republicans make when it comes to lifting the debt ceiling. Thank you. Thank you. Also, a new report released by special counsel John Durham concludes the FBI should never have launched its 2016 Russia investigation in the first place. Durham, who was picked by the Trump administration, writes that 
The over 300-page report details a four-year probe, which yielded very little in terms of prosecutions. He adds, quote, the FBI used raw, unanalyzed, and uncooperated intelligence and, quote, ignored material information that did not support the narrative of a collusive relationship between Trump and Russia. We should know this report is at odds with the 2019 DOJ Inspector General's findings that there was a basis, a legitimate reason to open this investigation. So let's talk about it with CNN senior law enforcement analyst Andy McCabe. He's the former deputy director of the FBI. And importantly, he oversaw what became known as a crossfire hurricane probe into Trump in 2016. And Andy, your name is in this report almost 60 times, 58 times. Good morning. Morning. In your words, you were, quote, deeply involved in the decision to open the investigation. John Durham uh, says that you shouldn't have launched it. What's your response? John Durham is wrong. Uh, and it's not just uh, me that says that. Every other entity that's investigated um, our, our activities in 2016 agrees. And that's, of course, as you mentioned, uh, the DOJ uh, Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, uh, as well as the Senate Intelligence Committee, led, of course, uh, at the time by a Republican. Uh, uh, so this is this report, Poppy, stands as an anomaly. Uh, I have my own theories as to why it stands as an anomaly. I don't think this investigation was legitimate from its inception. Why? Um, Mr. Because simply because John Durham made clear from the very beginning, shortly after he was appointed, exactly what he was going to conclude. He's made public remarks indicating that he thought that we had uh, possibly broken the law and inappropriately investigated the president, which is an odd thing for any uh, then U.S. attorney to do at the beginning of an investigation. I uh, echoed the same sentiments of the of his boss, William Barr, who was attorney general at the time. So I don't think it's surprising where the where the report came out. It's disappointing. Uh, and it continues to fuel a false narrative about uh, alleged FBI malfeasance that continues to this day, almost seven years after the events uh, in question. Um, but, you know, it's as I said, I'm not surprised. I'll note at the time that he was appointed by Bill Barr, Democratic uh, senator of Connecticut, where, where obviously Durham practiced and practices. Chris Murphy told CNN he had a, quote, reputation of being apolitical and serious. So among the things that he concluded is he says the FBI, under your purview in this investigation, displayed a, quote, lack of analytical rigor. That's a quote. He also said that you used, quote, raw, unanalyzed and uncooperated intelligence to launch the investigation. It makes the accusation that essentially you guys used different standards for which to launch this as opposed to probe into Hillary Clinton. What's your response? Yeah, that's that's entirely inaccurate. Uh, you've got a lot packed into that question. So I'll address a couple of those points, if that's OK. Uh, the investigation was initiated not based on raw, uncorroborated intelligence, but in, but on significant understanding and awareness of what the Russians were doing in their uh, multi-pronged effort to influence the 2016 election. We knew the Russians had been targeting us in cyberspace. We knew the Russians had been going after and stealing uh, electronic information from our political institutions, from government institutions for uh, over a year until the beginning of, of 2016. We knew they targeted the DNC and exfiltrated an enormous amount of information about Hillary Clinton. And then we knew that the Russian, Russians used that information in an effort to impact the election by releasing those emails on the eve of the Democratic National Convention. We only found out later at the end of July that prior to weaponizing that information, they'd made essentially an offer 
to the Trump campaign, that they had information about Hillary Clinton and that they would use it uh, to benefit the Trump campaign. So with that understanding of what the Russians were doing, we had the question, the very real and very significant question of whether or not members of a domestic political campaign had conspired with or taken assistance from the Russians. We didn't know if they had. We didn't know who that might have been. But we knew that it was something that had to be investigated. That's the opening of the case that, as I said, the IG and other investigative entities approved of that action uh, in hindsight. And he also included in Durham's report are disparaging text messages about former President Trump. I'll just highlight this one. We can show our viewers. This was on August 15th. 2016, about two weeks after the investigation was launched between two key team members, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. Uh, Here it is, quote, I want to believe the path you threw out for consideration in Andy's office, that there's no way he, meaning Trump, gets elected. But I'm afraid we can't take that risk. It's like an insurance policy in the unlikely event that you die before you're 40. Um, That obviously has gotten a lot of attention for many years. You said last night to my colleague Anderson Cooper, look, that was, quote, objectionable and unfortunate. Is there a lesson learned for the agency writ large from exchanges like that? I think there's a lot of lessons learned for the agency and certainly for those two individuals who were involved in, uh, in those communications. Um, if you're asking me, did the agency learn that they should now monitor the private communications of all their employees to safeguard against the, the, the uh, occurrences like this? No, I don't believe that's true. Um, but... Uh, There's no place in the FBI for people involved in an investigation to be approaching that work from a politically motivated standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you right now that at no time did I or anyone, to my knowledge, understand that Peter Strucker or Lisa Page harbored those sort, were having those sorts of conversations. Uh, Neither of the two of them ever gave me or anyone else that I'm aware of any indication that their work Mm. on this investigation was being influenced by their professional, by their personal uh, opinions. So, and that, that stands to this day. And, And just to put a button on it, because of the point you made up in terms of not letting anything in terms of personal political beliefs interfere with the work that is done, I thought it was interesting that in this report, Durham suggested creating a sort of a a position for a nonpartisan FBI lawyer or agent who would essentially step in and oversee and help put checks on anything that would be deemed a politically sensitive investigation. Do you think that's a good idea? It's not a bad idea, but I don't think it's necessary. I mean, look, that person, that that role, that voice exists in the FBI to this today. And that's the general counsel of the FBI and the staff of the general counsel's office include dozens of attorneys who do nothing but advise the FBI on the implications of their national security work. Those people, Jim Baker, who was who was general counsel at the time and and many of the lawyers who worked for him were present in all of the meetings in which opening this investigation and conducting this investigative matter were discussed. And we had those conversations about what the implications would be, the legality of what we were doing, the authority behind the steps that we were taking. So those conversations happened. If Mr. Durham, in uh, in a failure to come up with any other significant uh, recommendations, is suggesting that the FBI should have another lawyer, I think that's great. They should have another lawyer. I'm sure they have plenty of work to do. 
Um, but those kind of conversations, that sort of oversight that he's suggesting is already taking place and has always taken place in the FBI. Andrew McCabe, thank you very, very much. Obviously, you were critical in this investigation. Appreciate you answering questions this morning. Sure thing. Thanks, Poppy. Yep. We're also getting new details this morning about a mass shooting that happened in Farmington, New Mexico yesterday, where police say an 18-year-old was armed with three guns and an AR-style rifle. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Sad news to report new details this morning on a deadly mass shooting in Farmington, New Mexico. An 18-year-old gunman killed three people and wounded six others, including two police officers, before being shot and killed by police. The gunman used three guns, including an AR-style rifle, and according to authorities, he roamed a rough, roughly a quarter-mile area, shooting and firing randomly. Natasha Chen is following it and joins us this morning. Uh, we know there's not much information being released yet, but what have you learned? Yeah, Poppy, the police chief released a video posted to Facebook last night where he described police arriving on scene within five minutes of the initial call. Uh, There were six people injured in addition to the three people killed. Of those six, two of them were members of law enforcement, one of them a Farmington police officer uh, who the chief said was treated and released now. He said the other was a state police officer who drove himself to the hospital and is doing okay. So they have non-life-threatening injuries. Uh, The chief described this as one of the most difficult and horrific days Farmington has ever experienced. Here he is talking about investigating the motivation here. We are doing the best that we can to piece through and talk with family members of the suspect. Piece through what was going on. Look at the evidence to see if we can figure out what the motivation was. But at this point, it appears to be purely random, uh, that there was no schools, no churches, uh, no individuals targeted. He says this was a wide and complex scene where the shooter uh, shot at least six houses and three cars as well. Uh, We are talking about three weapons used, as you said. One of them, the chief said, an AR-style rifle. We're expecting a press conference later this afternoon, hopefully with more information. Poppy. Natasha, thank you for following that. Also this morning, sources tell CNN Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is days away from announcing his bid for the White House before the end of the month. One of the candidates who's already officially in the 2024 race is here in studio. We'll talk to former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson about that and much more next. New this morning, sources tell CNN that the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, is days away from launching his White House bid, something that's expected to happen before the end of May. His political operation is currently moving into a new headquarters in Tallahassee as a super PAC that is closely aligned with the governor builds out a national campaign from Atlanta. A source with knowledge of the planning told CNN he thinks he's on a mission from God and he wants people who are going to give up their lives the next year to go change the world. Just yesterday, former President Trump was pushing back on DeSantis, who called on Republicans to reject a, quote, culture of losing, saying, I'm doing much better against Biden than he is in the polls, and I'm doing much better against him. It did very well in the midterms. Ron's not a winner. DeSantis responded to that comment from Trump. Well, we've had uh, three election cycles in a row where we've had poor results. I mean, that's just the fact. And then 2022, 
the circumstances were probably never better for our party in the last 10, 15 years. It was a historic underperformance across the board. So I'm not sure what he's saying, that his candidates did well in the midterms. If that were the case, we would have 54 Senate seats. Joining us now, one of the Republicans that DeSantis will likely soon be running against, Republican presidential candidate and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Nice to have you here on set. DeSantis does have a point about the 2022 midterms and what those looked like for Republicans, does he not? Oh, he's absolutely right. I mean, you could take states like Arkansas and we did well. Uh, We grew our Republican majority. Iowa did. So there's uh, different states that did well, but overall we didn't meet expectations. And he's right that uh, much of that responsibility lies with Donald Trump. Uh, Whenever you look, the fact that lost in 2020, uh, 2022, his candidates did not do well and he engaged himself in an ineffective way. And so the message to me is, and I think there's a consensus, uh, that if we're going to win uh, in 2024, we need to have new leadership. We need to move a different direction. We have to be able to attract um, independents and suburb- suburban voters with our message, and we can do it with the challenges with the Biden economy. Uh, people are struggling today, and to me, that's the where people trust the Republican leadership Uh, And I want to make the case on the economy that we have to control federal spending. I'd like to reduce uh, civilian federal employment by 10 percent. We'd like to be able to uh, make sure that we're strong. We control the border. These are messages that are important uh, for average American. I hope that's what we can focus on. I think a lot when we're as we're talking about DeSantis, about this fight that he has taken up now lawsuits with Disney and where you think the role is in the Republican Party, if there is a role for big government all of a sudden and private corporations. Obviously, Walmart is based in Bentonville, Arkansas. Would you ever uh, respond to Walmart taking a position you disagreed with as governor the way that Ron DeSantis has for Disney's position? I don't think government should be about punishing businesses because they say something we don't agree with. That's not the role of government. That's what the left tries to do. We shouldn't try to do it. That's what DeSantis is doing. Well, I I disagree with that totally. Uh, Let me make that very clear. While I disagree with much of what Disney has said or taken a position on an issue, uh, I don't think a government should be about punishing someone because we disagree with what they said or a position that they took. That's not the role of government. It is not conservative. And so as governor... Uh, I'm trying to recruit industry. I'm trying to support industry. I'm trying to grow the private sector, not punish them with government power. And so, sure, I don't want businesses to uh, get wrapped around the axle on woke ideology, but let's not punish them because we disagree with them. What we've got to do is the federal government needs to stay out of, uh, you know, the DEI. We've got to stay out of pushing businesses in a in a leftist direction. But we shouldn't use the power of government to push businesses any direction. Let them make a profit. Let them provide jobs. Let them grow. That's what the conservative philosophy is of the private sector. And you just talked about spending in Washington. I think pretty much anyone from any party would agree that spending is out of control in Washington. But when it comes to the talks that are happening right now and the demands that Republicans are making for cuts and the White House saying we're not going to negotiate on this, though they are meeting today, 
The former president, who is the frontrunner of the Republican Party right now, casually suggested letting the U.S. default last week if Republicans don't get those spending cuts that they want in our town hall. Is that responsible to say the U.S. should just default and imperil people's 401ks and 401ks and Social Security benefits? Well, default is not a responsible position. The United States cannot default on its debts. And you can't take uh, Mr. Trump's private business practices of declaring bankruptcy and using that as a tool uh, and say that's what ought to be applied to the federal government. Uh, we pay our debts. We keep uh, our uh, obligations paid. Uh, Speaker McCarthy is absolutely right in trying to negotiate uh, uh, a framework for reducing spending in the future. It is out of control. And President Biden should very quickly say, yes, I'll agree to a framework for the future to control spending. He should agree to that. This is not an unreasonable request. In the end, we've got to be able to make sure that we cover our debts. There's not any downgrade uh, in our bonding capacity. I want to ask you finally about women and children, um, because you said on this show back in April, I believe that you win on standing with the unborn and making it clear as to how you would help women and problem pregnancies as well. That was on a question about abortion. While you were governor of Arkansas, looking from 2018 to 2020, the most recent available data, your state had the highest rate of maternal mortality and the third highest rate of infant mortality. In 2020, there were seven infant deaths per 1,000 live births in Arkansas. That's according to the CDC. As president, what would you do differently? Because statistics like that are not acceptable. No, they're not. And, th and for that reason, uh, we initiated uh, expanded health care in our rural areas to help on maternal care and to help reduce uh, the incidence of, uh, of uh, births that uh, are unhealthy. And so we've invested in that. And as a national level, we have to make sure that adoption services are available and are funded properly. We got to make sure that we have the appropriate uh, maternal care and we need to have the states have more flexibility in Medicaid, for example, to provide those kind of expanded services. We had to go to the administration and beg and plead, give us a waiver so that we can have that flexibility. And so absolutely, we have to show more compassion and understanding and really help uh, the problem pregnancies and, and those uh, that are in uh, the uh, poor areas of Arkansas and our nation to make sure they have the health care uh, during that pregnancy. On the abortion front, you have said you would sign a federal abortion ban into law if you're elected. You'd said you want exceptions to be included in that. Poppy and I were talking earlier about Nikki Haley, who is obviously also running for president. She said the idea that a Republican president could ban all abortions is not being honest with the American people. What's your response to her comment? Well, uh, I mean, if you're speaking of it's very unlikely that we're going to have a supermajority of Democrats or Republicans that are going to be able to address it at the national level, I agree with that. It would take a supermajority in the Senate and the president of the same party to accomplish that result. And so you can talk in theory. And, and like I said, uh, I would support a uh, pro-life bill that came to my desk if it had reasonable exceptions to it and reasonable limitations. So that it, but, but most likely, and I think this is Nikki's point, that it's going to be left to the states. And that was one of the outcomes that's permissible under the Dobbs decision. And so each state is going to debate this. They're going to have different uh, standards based upon uh, their culture and, and, and what their uh, representatives But should uh, candidates say whether or not they would sign one? 
isn't it important? You've said that. Why? Why? Like she's not answering. Trump's not answering that question. Uh, yeah, sure, I think they should. They should state their position on it. I'm I'm pro-life, and and while we want to make sure that we provide the care, that we make sure uh, that uh, we have reasonable exceptions in there, and if you look at the polls, it's exceptions of rape, incest, and the life of the mother. They're very important exceptions that have to be included, and. Uh, but the candidate should state as to what their position is on it. That's where you get by the hurdles is honesty, clarity, and, uh, and, and, and really explaining and defending your position. Yep. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, it's nice to have you. Good to have you at the table. Oh, it's person. good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Charles, Shaq, Ernie, Kenny, inside the NBA has been a fan favorite for 30 years. People come for the expert analysis. They stay for the hilarious <laughs> jokes and pranks. We're going to be joined by Kenny the Jet Smith on his new memoir and headlines from the playoffs. That's all ahead. All right, Jet. First of all, my chair is booby trapped. It, it doesn't. It doesn't spin. It doesn't spin. So I can't do that. I'm not I cannot spin out. Congratulations, Shaq. Imagine, Chuckster, if you were outside and started hailing or something like that. Like doing what? Like it was hailing oh, outside. Shit. You would be totally protected. Oh, I can't see, Ernie, if you think. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. <laughs> Check this out. <laughs> It's just par for the course, by the way, <laughs> on the Emmy Award-winning TNT show Inside the NBA. Our next guest is Kenny Smith. He's a two-time NBA champion who joined the show after playing 10 seasons in the league. He is now adding author to his resume. His new book, Talk of Champions, Stories of People Who Made Me, gives a revealing look at the people who helped shape his life. And Kenny Smith joins us now. It is great to have you. Last time I got to be with you was in in the middle of the, you guys, in Utah Which at the so All-Star funny. Game. That was my favorite interview of the year. I just had to be quiet and let you guys go. <laughs> Good morning. Well, uh, we, do, we do talk basketball on our show as well. <laughs> yeah, but that's... <laughs> Not just having things drop on us and push. <laughs> that's the least of it. Um, congratulations on the book. I understand your five children and the pandemic played a big role in you actually writing it. But I love what you said in the book. You said, make no mistake, one of the most important people in my life, perhaps the most important, was a woman. Who? Well, my mom. You know, the one thing that she taught me is how to listen. I think what happens is I could hear her echoing in my ears now. Kenny, listen. Kenny, listen first. Because what, what, that, what that teaches you is at times to have empathy um, when you might not be as sympathetic to someone and what they're doing or what they're going through. But you might have, you have a chance to understand why they feel that way. And I think that helped with the relationships that I have uh, or had throughout the years with the Magic Johnsons, the Michael Jordans, and Charles Barkley's, and Shaq, who I've written about in the book. And uh, each chapter is named after a specific person mm -hmm. instead of chapter one, two, three, four. And I love that. I love that you have a different chapter dedicated to these, these deeply influential figures in your life. You just mentioned Michael Jordan there, and obviously 
that's a chapter I feel like everyone's going to skip ahead. They want to, to read about everything that you've said about him. And one of the quotes you had in your book was about late night conversations that the two of you had. And you said, when you're 18 or 19 years old, you have conversations that you don't have at 30. You're still vulnerable in figuring out who you are. What were those conversations like? Well, the interesting part is to see um, when your college roommates on the road, you're talking about your dreams and aspirations, and then watch someone ascend to them and how they, you know, you, you talking those into to light. And for me, you know, I always, I'm the one that kind of le- reads a lot of self-help books and how to get better at certain things. And it, I always thought it was from one person's perspective. And then, you know, I was writing the book and I'm sending in chapters and I realized that the access that I had to the people, everyone I was writing about had a book of written about their life. And so I, this is 15 chapters of self-help. So I think when people read it, they're going to feel better about themselves. They're going to get 15 perspectives and go, oh, when I do that, that's why I work. Magic Johnson does that. Oh, Bill Russell did that. Dean Smith did that. When it doesn't work, they say, oh, I understand why it doesn't work as well. Because you, you're talking to champions and people of champions of life, not just of the sport. You said we talk basketball on the show, too. But I do think some of the most meaningful and consequential <laughs> and impactful things you say, aside from the hilarious jokes, are what you talk about that is about culture, about politics, about society, about discrimination. I just think back to 2020, you walked off set in solidarity with the Milwaukee Bucks after the shooting of Jacob Blake, a black mm-hmm. man in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And you talk about in the book your response to Shaq and Charles in that moment. Can you speak to the impact that had on you? Because it certainly made an impact to everyone watching. Yeah, again, I think as a country, uh, this was that was the height of times where, you know, in this generation of people, uh, that we had all like you in, as a country feeling a different way and feeling certain ways. And I just I just felt that that day it was important not to just be a talking head, but to kind of join the march and in solidarity of creating some unity with inside the country. Um, for me, you know, when you talk about everyone in the book, people like Dean Smith, who would you would might not expect, you know, my first year, my first week in, in, as a freshman, he, he brought me in his office. I thought we were going to talk about jump rope and lifting weights and all the things. He says, Kenny, what are you going to do on campus as an African-American student mm. to help African-American people? And I'm like, whoa. And at that point, honestly, no one of, that wasn't of color had ever asked me a question what I was going to do for my own people. And so those echoes were in my head when I walked off. And I said, you know, you have to do things and also not just you talk about them, you have to participate in them as well. Yeah, it's a deep conversation to have at that time. It's meaningful. Uh, you said we do talk about basketball on your show as well. We talk about basketball on this show too. Game one tonight, who do you have? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting, you know, the, the, uh, the, the East Coast with the, with the, uh, and the West Coast are so different with the Lakers and, and, uh, and Denver. Denver to me is the most, complete basketball team that's left. They have mm-hmm. everything. They have an MVP candidate, have great point guards. They have experience and youth, coaching, all the things. They, have. they should win it. They would be the favorite. Uh, but the Boston Celtics coming up on Wednesday, those guys uh, have, have, have proven that they are the youngest duo with Britt Tatum and Brown. Mm-hmm. And, and to win 
in the last six years. They've been to conference finals. They've been to NBA finals. Even even better than LeBron James. They've had they've had more success, those two guys, than anyone in basketball right now in the last six years. So do not, do not count out the Boston Celtics. Okay, we're going to end on King Charles. And by that, I mean Gail King and Charles Barkley, who are bringing their talents to CNN starting in the fall. Any words of advice for your fellow host? And thanks for sharing him with us, by the way. Well, listen, you can have him anytime you want. And um, sharing is not a problem. Sharing is caring over here. We will, Shaq and I and Ernie will share anytime. The biggest thing, I'll go back to what my, my mom said. Be a good listener because you're not going to always be, you need to be empathetic and you're not always going to be sympathetic or agree with what he says. So that would be my advice. We started with it, we'll end with it. Yeah. I texted Chuck and I said that we only hired him because I'm such a rabid Alabama fan that we needed a little more Auburn <laughs> here at CNN. And so that's who he's representing while he's here. Um, exactly Kenny right. Smith, the book is Talk of Champions. Thank you so much for coming on to, to share your morning with us and to talk about that. Thanks a lot, guys. Congratulations. It's going to be such a good book. I know. All right. Price of new cars. The price of new cars has skyrocketed because of the global shortage the past few years, that's forced many Americans to keep their cars longer than they previously would have. How long? Harry and <laughs> with this morning's number. With the low supply of new cars coupled with sky-high prices, we have new data that shows more Americans are actually holding on to their cars a lot longer than they were before. Like... This is our data point right here. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten has been crunching the numbers, including talking to Poppy. Harry, what is this morning's number? I'm actually very interested in this. All right, this morning's number is 12.5 because the average car has been on the road now for 12.5 years, a figure that has gone up for six consecutive years. Why are these cars staying on the road for so long? Well, maybe it's because the price of a new car is way up. Look at this, up to 48000 now. That is up $11,000 from pre-pandemic in April of 2019. How about a used car? That might be a little bit better. Not really, no. Average used car list price, look at that, up $8,000 from 19000 to $27,000 in April of 2023. $27,000 for a used car. That's a lot. Yes. It's a lot. And, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in, you know, the Biden administration, you know, wants to get electric cars on the road, right? So the idea is, okay, do those roads stay on the road longer than the combustion vehicles? Actually, no. So the registered cars pulled from commission over the last decade, look at this, 6.6 of electric vehicles. Look at that, just 5.2% of combustion vehicles. And of course, keep in mind that gasoline vehicles are, there are so many of them on the road, 241 million to just 1.5 million electric in 2021. So I don't know, guys. And when it comes to electric cars, I mean, how are we seeing those numbers? I feel like we talk about electric cars on the show all the time, but you're not really seeing it reflected. I got in. chastised by my daughter this weekend for not having, my seven-year-old for not having an electric car. She thinks car. you should have an electric we car. We have a 2012 Highlander, and you know why? Because it's still working. Still working. She's, we almost ran out of gas. She's like, Mom, if you had an electric car, this wouldn't happen. If it gets you from point A to point B, that's what's most important in my mind. See, Sienna. Thanks, Harry. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Harry. All right, and thank you for joining us this morning. We had a lot of headlines to go over. We'll see you back tomorrow. CNN News Central starts right after this break.
That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.